So my name is Kyle Burke. I am the youth pastor here. I'm still relatively new, but I feel like I've been here for a long time. Not in a bad way, in a good way. Um, it is my pleasure to continue walking through Exodus with you. We'll be doing Exodus 3, the burning bush narrative. Matt is super jealous about that, that I got to preach on it. So give him a hard time that I got the best part of Exodus. Um, and we will be doing two texts today. So we'll be doing Exodus 3, and then we will be doing John 1 to the gospel. And there's a really cool overlap between the texts. And so we will be doing that together. So if you have your Bibles, keep Exodus open. And then I'm going to give us the time, so you're going to flop to the back and do John. All right? But before we begin, let me pray, and then we will jump right in. Dear Father, we, um, we give you glory on this beautiful day. We ask that you um, speak through me, Lord, that I can be out of the way, and that you can just be present through your word and through the conviction of your spirit. Lord, I pray that this time will enrich us all, that we will have a moment in our weeks to not just be in community, but to settle our hearts and minds to be open to what you have to say to us, to be present with you because you are always present with us. So I pray that you just bless our time, that you give this uh, text life and that we will just uh, grow through the exploration of your word. In your son's name, amen. All right, so Exodus 3 is where we're gonna be going. But before we go there, because it's been a week since we preached Exodus 2, everyone probably forgot where we were before. So. Where we were before, Moses fleeing Egypt. He's fleeing Egypt because he killed somebody. And he lands in the wilderness, and that's the end of his story for him, for, for all intents and purposes. He's looking at his life. He's going, guess I'm a shepherd now. Guess I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. That's it for me. And we see in this part, in Exodus 3, Moses has been living that way as a shepherd, as an outcast, as a nobody for almost 40 years. 40 years of homesteading. He has a family. He's a blue-collar worker. He's been doing the, the, the routine of a shepherd for the past 40 years. He is no deliverer. He knows he's not special. He's all done. But is he really done? There's a lot more of Exodus written. Am I right? So we'll be looking at that. And one of the hardest things about someone like Moses' uh, life is that when you're in it, you just feel like that's it, right? But I can't see the future. I don't know the future. All I know is that I'm not being used now, right? That's the hardest part about being human. We can't see the end of our stories. We cannot jump to the end. And when we start settling, our dreams die, our passion fades. We just go, okay, I guess this is what I'm doing. But that's often when God just steps in and rearranges it so that his name will be known through our story. A similar theme uh, runs through one of my favorite pieces of literature, and I'm not talking about the movie here. I'm talking about the book, Lord of the Rings, specifically the first one, The Fellowship of the Ring. Because the movies show Frodo heading off to do his adventure, and he looks like a newborn baby, right? He's like beautiful and like cheery-eyed. He looks like five years old, right? But in the books... Frodo gets commissioned by Gandalf at the ripe age of 50. 50 years old. 50 years of being a hobbit, going to tea parties, gardening, debating the, the other hobbits around, just like calling each other names, right? He, he, he has no idea about what's coming his way. And then Gandalf shows up and he commissions him. He, he, Gandalf is the divine inter intervention of the Lord. And he lands in Frodo's life and kicks Frodo out of the house to go save Middle-earth. And Frodo isn't happy about that. 
We see that Frodo's kind of reluctant, and we see with Moses as well. Moses is like, this is the end of my road, man. Like, I, I have nothing left to offer. So if you, if you read with me, um, this, you'll, you'll see kind of a parallel from Frodo and Moses. <laughs> Frodo says, I wish it need not happen in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And that's the invitation God gives Moses. We're going to see in this passage, God gives Moses not just multiple invitations to join a bigger thing. He's giving Moses a new identity. And he doesn't do that from a space far away through cryptic writings. He meets Moses personally. He personally meets Moses and personally commissions him to go. And so let's jump into the text. If you have your Bibles, open to Exodus 3, and we're going to be reading 1 through 4. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, as we all would, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why? The bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Old man Moses, taking his sheep out again, taking them to a routine stop he's probably done hundreds if not thousands of times before, wandering through a barren land to find grazing for his sheep. Who knows what kind of exciting things he's ever encountered on that journey? Maybe wolves, maybe nomads, who knows? But he's never encountered this, a bush that did not burn, but it was on fire. It's an astounding sight. If we all left right now, if I said, everyone, let's go, walk up this hill, and at the top of the hill, we saw a boulder floating in the air, or a whirlpool, a whirlpool of water on the ground, we'd all be like, what is this wondrous sight? It's something that's natural and yet unnatural. Moses was experiencing something that actually illustrates God's very being. The flame that was on the bush illustrates God's flame, who God is. God is a self-fueling fire. He doesn't need anything to burn. We need food to burn. We need to drink water to live. Right? We actually depend on energy. God is his own source of energy. He's his own being. He's separate. He is holy from our condition. And yet, this eternal being lands on this physical object, a bush, and it does not consume it. God is able to interact with natural things and do so in a way to provide revelation because God is not just showing off here. In, in Exodus we see over and over when God appears, he's not just showing uh, uh, cool, wondrous sights. So in Exodus 24, there's a really cool scene that the Israelites get to see, right? Moses sees the private bush, but the Israelites are going to see a, um, an amazing sight. I think we have that slide. No, we do not have that slide. Okay, um, Exodus 24, it's uh, the revelation of God's glory to the Israelites on top of the Mount Sinai, and I'll read it to you really quick. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. Then Moses entered it <laughs> as he went up the mountain. So, 
Moses got this little burning bush revelation. Later in Exodus, we see God doing this amazing mountaintop burning fiery thing that reminds us of Mount Doom, let's be honest. If you've ever watched the movie, it would probably stir up those images. But God doesn't do that to show some cool magic tricks. He doesn't appear and go, hey, look, I can make a bush appear that's not burning. Okay, see you, Moses. He uses it as a personal introduction. He goes, hey, you, you come over here and see what I'm about to do. I know your name, by the way. Your name is Moses. I want to talk to you. And so in verses 5 and 6, we see the conversation continue. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was too afraid to look at God. Now, I've done this with my brothers. I've uh, said, hey, I got a secret for you. Come over here. And then I'll shoot him with a Nerf gun. <laughs> I've done stuff like that, right? You're like You set them up. And you're like, hey, hey, come here. here. So God's not doing that with Moses here, but it feels similar, like almost like a prank, right? Come over here, Moses. Just kidding. Stand back. This is holy ground. You might burn up. And the reason God does this isn't to, to mock Moses or make little of him. It's to show him something of who he is, who God is. Sorry, I'm going to cough. <clears throat> Man. God is revealing himself to Moses to show that he is a paradoxical being. He is two things. He is other. He is holy. He is pure, burning essence, right? But he also wants to talk to Moses. He wants to make sure Moses comes to him reverently with the right attitude to really understand who he's talking to. We see this throughout scripture that there's a delicate dance of approaching God where we go, I love you, but I'm afraid of you. I revere you, but I want to be intimate with you right? We see this over and over where God doesn't let us forget that. He doesn't let us forget he is God and we are not, but he does want to get to know us, and that leads us to our first point. The Lord is personally focused on his people. His gaze has been on Moses and his lonely little 40-year journey through the wilderness, and his gaze has never left the suffering of his people. God remembers, and he remembers all the things he's promised and his plans he isn't doing something elsewhere for other people. And that's sometimes where we draw the line with our relationship with God. We can, and I've heard this from many friends, from people that are agnostic, from people that don't believe in God. They go, well, if there was a God, he's probably busy. He's probably thinking of bigger things. Why would he focus on me? Why would he look at me? But God is not that God. In fact, in, a lot, in 1 Kings, we see that God is standing against that mentality. A God that he is omnipresent, omnipotent. Those words mean he is everywhere and he notices everything and he knows everything. And so in 1 Kings, Elijah is challenging these prophets of a false God to a God battle. Whose God is gonna win this one? The WWE event of the century, right? <clears throat> so if you go with me to 1 Kings, um, you may... If you want to, you don't have to. I'm going to read it really quickly. That Elijah, he, he goes before these prophets and then he says, okay, here's the deal. You're going to call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of mine. And whoever God responds with this fire from heaven, he is God. And so the prophets of Baal cry out, Baal, hear us, answer us. But no answer came. And so they just keep dancing around the altar, shouting, screaming for hours. And it says, at about noon, this is uh, 1 Kings 18, 26 through 28, Elijah began to taunt them. 
Shout louder, he says. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Elijah is mocking the pagan worldview that their god can be summoned and that if they don't summon him, he's out doing something else. Yahweh is present and Yahweh is focused on his people at all times, even when we forget. He is not like us. He is not like any other god. And we keep seeing this over and over in this passage. Let's keep reading Exodus 7, uh, 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of all the ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Heaviites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israelites have, have reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God isn't content with showing Moses a light show. He's also not content with Moses just getting to know him, a divine handshake. He wants to use Moses and redeem who he is. Right? God is not just laying out, hey, this is who I am. It's nice to meet you. He's saying, I'm going to do something cool. In fact, I'm going to give you the end of the story. The Lord tells Moses where they're landing. Now, he doesn't tell Moses when that is. That would have been helpful, probably for Moses. He's like, you mean it's another 40 years? Are you kidding me right now? <clears throat> but he does tell Moses the end of the story. He does tell Moses that this thing will happen. He will free the Israelites and that God will be with him. Seems pretty clear to me. And yet Moses is just like us, and a lot of us could do the same thing in front of God. We cannot just overcome 80 years of wasted life in one conversation. He is deeply inadequate, and he feels that. He's standing before the holy God, who's telling him this amazing plan, and Moses is like, who am I? Who am I to do this? Are you kidding me? I killed the dude. I ran away. The Jews and Israelites, I mean, the Jews and the Egyptians hate me. Are you kidding me right now? I am not the guy. I am not the guy. If you were like me or like Moses, this feels normal. This is a normal human response to something that big just plopped on us. But then we would be missing the main point of this whole conversation. Look how many times God says, I, in this section alone. I have seen, I have heard, I'm coming down, I will do this, I send you. It's not about Moses. Moses is literally a human vessel. He's a small prophet that will do what God wants to do. Which leads us to the second point of our morning. The Lord is personally present with his people. This isn't just Moses being sent on a suicide mission. God is saying, not only will I send you, I will be with you. I will be with you just like the fire could land on this bush and not consume it. I'm going to be with you. You're my bush and I'm the fire. I'm landing on you. I'm going to go with you. I'm empowering you. Sounds pretty great. Moses should have been like, sign me up. I'm just feeding sheep right now. Like, I could do something better than that. 
But again, there's this level of human doubt that enters the conversation because God says, he doesn't say, and this is the sign I will give you. Every day you're going to wake up and the bush will be hopping alongside with you. He's not like, I'm going to literally appear as a flaming angel and walk with you. No, he says, this is the sign I promise you. One day you'll come back to this mountain and worship me. It's a future sign. And for a lot of us human beings, we're like, I don't like that. That's way out there. <laughs> and we see when Moses goes to Pharaoh, like through the next couple chapters, he hits a wall. He has some serious blowback. The people get angry at him. Pharaoh mocks him. Like he's probably going, you set me up. You set me up, right? And that's where faith and obedience come into the equation. Faith and obedience are the only thing that God ever requires of people. And that's what we see over and over and over in scripture. Just be faithfully obedient with the small little thing I give you. And we as people need to hear that over and over and over because we hate it so much. We don't want to depend on somebody else. We don't want to obey somebody that can't guarantee physical results right now. God is promising Moses this divine presence will go with him and yet he's still like, eh, who am I? Eh, I don't know. I don't know about that. The reason God asks for faithful obedience is it does something mystical in our hearts. It allows us to see God clearer. Because when Moses goes and comes back in Exodus 24, he gets to meet God on the mountaintop. And then, even more so, one of the coolest sections of Exodus in Exodus 33, we're going to read what happens uh, when Moses is being faithful this whole time. So Moses has made a tent for God and him to meet with. It's called the Tent of Meeting. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, this is God, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. That's a big upgrade from a burning bush. That's a big upgrade from a flaming mountain. He's meeting with the God of gods, Yahweh, face to face as a friend. And so here we see that, again, the Lord is, wants to be personally present with Moses. He wants to draw Moses along this, this relationship to the point where now Moses trusts him. And Moses wants to be with him and can be with him. Our faithful obedience prepares us for clearer revelations of who God is. And yet, poor Moses is just like us. He is human. So let's read chapters, uh, verses 13 through 15. Moses, uh, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and stay with them. I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Moses does not start off on a good foot. He says, suppose to God. Like, I've done that to my parents, and that's a bad decision in general. <laughs> it's like, take the trash out. Well, suppose I take the trash out. What are you going to give me? Right? Like, that's not a, that's, that's a no-no. Right? Take that to the next level. This is God. I'm sending you. Well, suppose I go. Right? And in one level, it's, it's insulting. In one level, it's, it's insulting the, the gravity of the mission. That's like Frodo getting the ring, Gandalf saying, go take it to Mount Doom. And he's like, suppose I do. Where will I fit it in my busy tea party schedule? 
how long will this trip take, okay? Right? That would be insulting. Frodo would probably get a backhand. But God does not backhand Moses. He does set Moses on his back foot. He answers Moses' question with a riddle. He says, a mystery that we still don't understand today. I am who I am. Scholars have been struggling to pick this apart. What does that mean? What is the name of God? Probably the simplest way we can understand it is, is this. I am who I say I am. I'm God and you're not. It's none of your business. <laughs> I'm God. You are human. How dare you try to quantify me with a name? However, you can. I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, it's this paradox. God is holy. God is other. God is much bigger than Moses' little world can comprehend. And he makes sure to, to let him know that. And he makes sure to let us know that. We don't just come to Jesus and be like, you're my friend, bro. No, you're God. You are God of gods. You are king of kings. And yet, you're the God of these real people. Earlier in the text, God says, I hear the suffering of my people and I want you to rescue my Israelites. These are the people that he named. Before Israelites, it was Jacob, the, ki- the sons of Jacob. Then he named Jacob Israel, and then Jacob's kids became the Israelites. God chose them and named them. The Lord is personally known by his people. Not only is he focused on them, not only is he trying to be present, but he's trying to be present in a way that they know him well. We see this very clearly in Joseph's story. Uh, we talked briefly at the beginning of this um, whole series about the transition from Genesis to Exodus and how Joseph was the last bit of Genesis. And he was one of God's, I think, best servants in all of, all of Genesis. And Joseph ends his whole life with this speech at his death. And he says this word. He says, the Lord will attend to you. And in, in, in Genesis 50, 24 through 25, he says, the Lord will attend to you. He's talking to his descendants. And the word attend is in the Hebrew word pakad. P-A-Q-A-D. And it means a lot of things like seen or watched over. And it's much more than just like with the binoculars, like watching somebody. It's about personally like a parent to a child watching and, and caring for them, worrying about them, observing them. And so Joseph gives this promise to his people. But for 400 years, they're in slavery. All of a sudden, Moses meets God. And in verse 16, which we're not going to cover today, the Lord tells Moses, Go and tell the elders of, is, of the Israelites, I have watched you. I have seen what has been done. And it's the same word. God is saying, you may have forgotten what Joseph had said, but I never did. I'm still attending to you. I'm still watching you because I want to know you and I want you to know me. We see this with Moses. Moses is starting out pretty bad. Like, I'll be honest. He's like an old man. He's grouchy. He's like, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm doubting this whole scenario. Um, and God's looking at him like a begrudging servant, but God sees the future. God knows that Exodus 33 moment when he meets him face-to-face as friends. Do you think God is impatient, getting frustrated with Moses? I mean, clearly we'll see that in the next section. He does get angry with Moses, (laughs) but right now God is looking at Moses and going like with compassion. He's like, I found you. I called you by name. I'm sending you out, and I want to meet you face-to-face one day. I want you to know me as a friend. The purpose of the burning bush and all of these miracles isn't just to show off. It's to take people away from slavery and bring them to worship at the mountain, like he says. 
I want to meet with these people. I want them to love me. I'm going to give them this really cool set of rules so that they can be with me. We can see this uh, represented on the flip side from, with kids and parents. My son is two years old, which means he's really cute. And um, he's incredibly interested in capturing my attention. That's all he wants. He'll, call, he'll tell Ruthie to call me sometimes. Or when I call Ruthie, he'll call me over the phone like, when are you coming home? He wants to know when I'm home so he can be in my, I can attend to him, I can watch him, I can care for him, I can be with him, and he can show me what he's learning and make me laugh. It's this beautiful relationship where both of us are enjoying the, the whole experience. But guess what? I'm a human, so I have phones, and I have distractions, and I have other things that just draw me away from that relationship. And that's where the difference between humans and God is. God is not drawn away from gazing on us with love and affection and intention and care. We're the ones, as we grow older, that go, ah, oh, God doesn't really care about me. My life is so messy, there's no way he could be watching me with the same attention I would watch a two-year-old. But God is. He's so deeply in love with us. He's attending to us in that beautiful, personal way. Not just because he wants to look like a father outside of a, like a, have you ever seen puppies in the, the pet store windows? Right? God's not on the outside of the glass like, oh, I'm such a cute puppy. Well, anyways, I'll see you later. Right? He's not doing that. He, he wants that puppy or us, he wants us to be the kid that can be in, with him and know him. And that's where we kind of hit a wall with the Old Testament. I'll just, this is why we're going to John because the Old Testament can kind of read like Lord of the Rings. I'll be honest. We're going to read stories of fire from heaven, the sun getting blotted out, the sea getting split in two, earthquakes and quail and a weird, lot of weird stuff. Like, and, and it starts to read a little bit fantastic. And it's really hard because we don't have that history. We are not from, a lot of us aren't Jewish and we don't have the history of hearing these stories. So they really, it's almost like, again, picking up a book and going, this is really cool, but how does it land with me? How does this personal God who's approaching Moses and approaching his Israelites with intention supposed to come to me? How am I supposed to fit myself in the story? The so what question is, needs to be asked. And so that's why I decided we should go to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the answer to those questions. The so what is answered in the person who came down to us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 1. Because this is fun. All right. John 1, 9 through 13. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human desire, or husband's will, but born of God. And we see here, in Exodus, the Lord is personally focused on his people, and in John, Jesus personally lands on earth to invite people with his light. And not just a certain small subset of the human race, but all people. The light that dwelt with God came down, and we did not recognize him. Because I think we were expecting the spectacle. I think humans want to meet God in the desert with the flames and all that stuff. And Jesus came as a paradox. It's funny because he's the light of the world, but why did we not understand him? He is the truth, but why did people not believe him? 
He's the very word of God that dwelt with God and built the world with his very hands, and yet, why do we not receive him? It's a paradox, again. We expected him to show up like he used to, but he was doing something different here. He came as nothing to draw everyone to him. Jesus calls his disciples by name, just like Exodus, where God calls Moses, except Moses knew who was calling him, and guess what? The disciples did not know who was calling them. And it was only until after Jesus rose again that they're like, wait, I've been talking to God for three years? <laughs> like, imagine their poor little brains. And just be like, I've been literally face to face with God. We see this throughout John. And in 1 John, he talks about how we have seen and heard, we have touched the very God that we worship. <laughs> like, how crazy is that? And then on top of that, there's this idea that John uh, brings out in the first part of John, verses 1 and 2 of John 1. It says, the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That word with is much more than like, hey, they hung out. It's just like two people looking deeply into each other's eyes, sharing this intimate communion and union. He was with God and equal to God because he was God. And he's looking into the, the very face of God, just like Moses was looking into the very face of God. And yet now he's not just doing that for himself, he's drawing us into it. Jesus is inviting us, human beings, into that communion, into that union. That's magnificent. But he does it in a way that we don't understand. At least not easily. And so let's continue reading. In John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Lord is personally present with his people in Exodus, but Jesus personally dwells with his people. And we see this in Matthew. We'll, we'll go there in a little bit. But Jesus landed on earth, and he didn't land like a superhuman, shining, like some sort of super saiyan character, showing off his, his flames and his, his cool, dazzling lights, he lands in very humble human form. He was nothing great to look at. He was a carpenter. He wasn't like high class. He wasn't a king. And it was a conscientious choice to be that way. Because when God is God, no one can stand with him. We can't even get close to him. In our world, we have classes. We have the poor and the rich the poor have a really hard time understanding what a billionaire does on his day-to-day -day, or why they have to sell a liquidated company or how they can purchase a country. And the opposite is true. Somebody who's born into wealth has no idea what it's like to be hungry or to depend on a paycheck. If we have within our very human nature differences and in, in, in inability to understand each other, how much more so than us to God? We, we, can't, we can't come close to that. We can't even get in his presence without burning up. We see this in Exodus. God invites the Israelites to come meet him. And they say, no, 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 no. We're going to die. Send Moses. They know. They know they're going to die. So with Jesus, he has to land in human form so that we can begin to identify with him and understand him and be drawn in by him. And then we personally get to meet him because he's dwelling here. And then something really weird happens. Jesus is here, the very person of God. And then he tells his disciples, hey, it's been fun, but I got to leave. And their first response is, what? You just got here. We just figured out who you were. 
Now I want to hang out with you all the time. And Jesus says, it is better that I go. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. He says, because I'm going to go and I'm going to send my spirit. And the spirit will be with you forever. And we see that in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, this is the Great Commission. And you, you've probably heard this a lot. It says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything, obey everything that I have commanded you. And here it is. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is mirroring the same language in Exodus. I will be with you, Moses. And Jesus says, not only am I going to be with you now, I'll be with you forever. Now, during your trials and tribulations, now during the suffering on earth, and forever and forevermore, you'll be with me. It's actually a greater thing, <laughs> what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's not telling a select group, he's telling the entire world. If you believe in me, I will be with you. The Spirit means that Jesus is more present now than he was when he was a physical human. He's everywhere. The church is everywhere. His disciples are everywhere. The light of God is shining everywhere now. And finally, Jesus says, I want, to be, I want to know you, and I want you to know me. So in Matthew, or John, I'm all over the place. John 1, 16 through 18, it says, Out of his fullness we have received grace and place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and who is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Again, there's a lot of crossover here between Exodus 3 and John 1. Jesus makes God's will in person known through him. Yes, he did miracles. He had to in the beginning. He did miracles to convince people of what he was trying to say. But guess what? The miracles ran out. The miracles didn't work. In fact, they were used against him. The religious leaders would say, you're performing miracles not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. The signs and wonders ran out of energy. They ran out of, of, of proclamation of the truth. We see that with the Exodus story. The Israelites watched God literally liberate them from an impossible place. And then a couple years later, they're like, we want to go back. I don't want to be here anymore. They forget. They forget and they forget. So Jesus says, I'll give you one sign that you cannot forget. And so the one sign, the mystery of the gospel, I died and I rose again. That's it. I will die and then I will rise again. And then you will know that I am God. <laughs> Jesus wants to be known by us. He is personally known by his people as Jesus, right? God wanted to be known first and foremost as I am who I am. And then the God of these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus wants to be known as Jesus because the glory of God has taken a new shape. Back in the day, in Exodus, I'll say back in the day, that was a long time ago. Back in the day, it was all about signs and wonders. The glory of God was so powerful, so magnificent, people couldn't approach him. But guess what? It's been flipped so far in the other direction for Jesus. The glory of God is seen not by mighty works, but by mercy and love. His priestly prayer in John 17, he, he, he basically says that the glory that I have with the Father, I'm giving to you, and that glory is union, unity with one another in love. That is glory. A lot of the churches in America right now that want miracles and signs and wonders, that's great. But guess what? That's not the glory of God anymore. 
Signs and wonders can be disputed. Love for your enemy cannot. That's a miracle. We see this with the whole um, Brant Jean incident where he hugs, the, this man had to, he hugged the woman who killed his brother in court and forgave her and said, trust in Jesus. That is a miracle. That cannot happen without God's glory being present through his heart, through the spirit that lived in him. We see this when Jesus reveals his name several times through John. He has the seven I am statements in John. He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And everyone's like, cool. This is great. I don't understand it, but sure. And then he reveals his name when God shouldn't be. Well, okay, we'll read it. All right. I don't want to give it too much away. All right. In John 18, 4 through 6, Judas and his little ragtag team of thugs come to pick up Jesus and take him before trial of the Sanhedrin. They're coming to get Jesus to kill him. And so in, in 4 through 6 in, in John 18, Jesus says, knowing all things that was going to happen to him, he went out to them and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am. Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Because in the Greek, it's not I am he, it's just being translated as I am. It's the same words that God said in the bush. But Jesus says it, and he doesn't win. He doesn't evaporate them. He doesn't have the legions of angels he says he, he has at his beck and call come and annihilate the world. He says, Yes, I'm in a, the name Jesus of Nazareth, which was one of his lower titles, it was just his name. He's like, that's God. That's who I am. And they all fall down. You think, they, I, I don't know how they got back up and arrested the guy. I, I really don't. They're like, I don't know why I just fell down. You fell down. We all fell down? What happened? Anyway, take him away. Like, I have no idea how that works. But that's crazy. God reveals himself at a moment of weakness, because the next thing we see, he's standing before these people that accuse him of lying and all this stuff, and then he dies. That's it. That's the glory of God? Are you kidding me? That's not an exodus. But it's what Jesus has done for us. He's saying, the glory that I used to have with the Father, and I, used, I, I had with the Father, and I have with the Father, I'm setting that aside so I can bring you in it. I'm bringing you with me. I'm personally knowing you so that you can personally know me. So how do, we, how do we wrestle this away from, from conceptual reality to our lives? Well, you need to remember, the Lord wants to be with you. As he was in Exodus, so he is in John, and so he is today. He's a personal God who's focused on you. He's, he dwelt here on purpose to invite you by name, and he wants to be known by you. We think sometimes God's taking a break, or we take a break from God. But Jesus died and rose again so that we may have eternal life and life with him now. I will be with you always now and forevermore. The glory of the burning bush, the glory of the resurrection, isn't just a thing out there. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it's in you. The Holy Spirit dwells with you, the very presence and glory of God. And we insult him by forgetting. I do this all the time. I'm like, I'm an autonomous robot functioning on my own. I'll send up a prayer to God because I'm busy and I need help. 
No, I'm not functioning with him. I'm not thinking about him with me now. I'm not praying with him as if he is here with me now, which he is. So what do we do? There's only two things I can really bring up. The first is you need to start creating holy ground in your life to meet with God. Sometimes we hear the word devotional at prayer time or Bible reading and go, come on, man, I'm busy. I'm a parent with like 10 kids. How do I do that? But guess what? If you're a parent with 10 kids, then you definitely need to do this. <laughs> As do I. I'm going to have another one coming into the world soon enough. And I will need to create space to meet with God because Bible reading and prayer with God are instrumental to breaking down walls, to changing things that cannot be changed in your life without him. And if a Christian tries to function without God on his or her own, your burnout will be spectacular. Because we can't do it. If we've, if we've said, yeah, Lord, live in me, love me, accept me, and then go, actually, I don't really need your help very often, what is that, what is that saying about our faith? What is that saying about our, our, our ability to be effective? Create holy space to meet with God. That means every day if you can, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 20 minutes here, pray, read the, set aside the mental space, put your phones down so that God can speak. And that leads us to our second point. We need to learn to pray without ceasing for Jesus to be present and involved in your life. Because sometimes we, we run into a day where we really don't have much space to set aside for God. But if you don't pray, then you don't have an open communication line with the one who's with you. Prayer is giving God focus and asking in faith for things. That's it. It's not something elaborate. You don't want to be, you don't have to do like Jesus says with tons of fancy words. You just simple stuff all day long. God, help me, or I love you, or give me strength, or give me wisdom. I need you. Prayer is communication. It's actually one of the most pure forms of communication because it's us just talking, right? We're just sharing, and we know he's listening. And did you know that all, I mean, everyone who's married here, they've heard this a thousand times, but all relationships either thrive or wither on the quality and quantity of your communication. All relationships, your best friend, your siblings, your father to the daughter or mother to son relationships, that will all die if you cannot keep these clear and open channels of communication with that person. You'll drift apart. And so praying without ceasing is an attitude to just constantly bring Jesus into the conversation of what you're doing. We need to be intentional about creating holy ground and we need to be intentional about meeting with him all day because he's here with us. He's focused on us. He wants to be known by us. We're going to take a, a moment, in a moment we're going to take some communion, but I want to pray first before um, we begin that process. So please bow your heads with me. Father, we, um, we know that you are God. You are the great I am. You are God and we are not. But you have come down in Jesus' physical form. You have captured our hearts with his message. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that we will be open to that. Um, we just love you. And the, the, the magnificent narrative that you've created through scripture, I pray that it becomes real for us, that we can capture those moments to read it and meditate on you, to pray to you. I ask now that you bless our time of, of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.